0: My guest today is the seemingly unstoppable dory clark if you if I were to introduce you to dory's- Dory's work in this moment, you'd likely be a bit overwhelmed by the amount that she's accomplished. She's been named one of the top fifty business thinkers in the world um she's been recognized as the number one communication coach in the world um She's a consultant, a keynote speaker. She teaches exec ed at Duke University and Columbia Business School. She's authored multiple books, including Entrepreneurial You, which uh, there are a number of people I can credit to the creation of this show, The Wonder Dome. Dory is one of them. In her book, Entrepreneurial You, she uh, speaks to the power of building a consistent podcast of producing something you love and sharing it with others. And this podcast, my commitment to this podcast was in part born because of her wisdom and insight about the power of making commitment over time. So anyway, she's got all these books and, you know, her book Stand Out was named the number one leadership book of the year. And she uh, has been a presidential campaign spokesperson and has been uh, described in the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review and on and on and on. And it's so all really, really cool. And if uh, you're a mere mortal, you might go, dang, like, what can I learn from Dory? How could I ever accomplish all that? And what I love about our conversation today is her latest book, The Long Game, which is likely out or will be out any day uh, when you hear this. It's being published on September 21st, 2021. It's all about the invisible, often invisible work that happens that produces the, the really wonderful cliche, but a important cliche, that every overnight success is 10 years in the making. Every overnight success is 10 years in the making. Or a, another mantra that I personally love, and I'm not sure who who it comes from, but I say it often. And it's the mantra that people always overestimate what they can do in a year but they underestimate what they can do in 10. Dory's book, The Long Game, is all about that phenomenon. And she explores in depth the many years of struggle and heartbreak and loss that put her on the path that she's on now. And the choices, the difficult choices she had to make about where to invest her time and her energy and money and what to focus on. And, and the goals that she had, that the sense of who she was supposed to be that got completely pulled out from under her. and how that in the long run enabled her to build the life of her dreams and share her wisdom with others. But in the moment produced all sorts of feelings of doubt and uh, challenge and lack of self-worth that those of us who just reading her bio might <laughs> relate to and go like, how could I ever do all that? But what I want you to touch in today, in addition to Dory's just effervescent brilliance and playfulness and kind of sort of, tell it like it is energy, is this recognition that if there's anything that you are cooking on in your life, that some part of you is holding out hope for, some dream, and it seems unreachable, simply give yourself permission to imagine it as a 10-year or more commitment. Not something that needs to happen now, but something that could become by virtue of the the small, totally doable, totally achievable choices that you could make right here at this moment. And if you're on the fence with that, listen to Dory. And I I sense that by the end of this conversation, you might really have a felt sense of what's possible. (sighs) So let's get settled in. (sighs) And hear what Dory has for us. Dory, welcome to the Wonder Dome.
1: Hey, Andy, good to be here.
0: Uh, It's so cool to have you here. I need to take a moment. I need to take just one fanboy moment to say, and I've already told you this offline, but I want people to hear it, that part of the reason that this podcast exists is because your book, Entrepreneurial You, exists. In particular, there's a chapter in that book about podcasting. And I read that chapter and and for a variety of reasons, I was already thinking about podcasting. And that was the kind of thing that was like, oh, if I'm going to do it, this is how I got to do it. And, And it was just like off to the races from there. So thank you for helping make this space a life. And now like, here you are in it. How cool is that?
1: That's amazing. Thank you so much. And props to you for for doing it, for making it happen. Yeah,
0: thank you. Thank you. So as you know, this is uh, a place for exploration and and conversation. I know you have a new book coming out soon, and I can't wait to talk about it. Um, But before we get there, I want to maybe walk backwards in time a little bit, because one connection we discovered is that we both went to, uh, to adjacent graduate schools, not at the same time, but in the same location. And, uh, and I've always been really curious about the fact that uh, you have a, studied the theology at the Divinity School at Harvard, and, uh, and you also have this really robust kind of practice helping people rethink who they are and how they show up in the world. And I wonder, to what extent do that, does that kind of past inform your present and, and you know, how, those two, how you tie those threads together for yourself today?
1: Yeah, thank you, Andy. So for a long time, people would ask, I think sometimes in aggressive ways, (laughs) like, how does your div school tie into what you're doing now? And like the only appropriate answer was like, it doesn't. (laughs) But uh, this is definitely
0: not an aggressive inquiry. I'm quite excited to see. uh, And I I sense that you have so many wonderful different experiences along the way. So I welcome them all.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that, and I was not calling you out, my man. <laughs> no, but I, I think a, a lot of a lot of people are very invested in having uh, a, a linear structure or a linear view mm-hmm. of the world, and it's like upsetting to them sometimes when you don't. Um, but f- the truth was, for a long time, I didn't necessarily see the connection i went to divinity school because i thought it would be interesting and i wanted to i wanted to learn about it i thought i wanted to have a career as an academic and i guess i sort of do now i teach business school but what i really wanted to do was be a literature professor and perhaps sort of work at the intersection of religion and literature, but Mm. that did not work. I got turned down by all of the doctoral programs that I applied to after I Uh. finished my master's degree. Um, So for a long time, I was like, well, I guess it doesn't really connect, but I was still glad that I did it. I thought it made me a better rounded person. I thought it was uh, just a, a valuable lens on the world. But what I have come to understand retrospectively is that I think there actually is a connection mm. in that essentially the study of religion is the study of um, meaning making. It's about you know how people um, who are believers structure their understanding of the world mm. and I th- and I've always found that very fascinating, you know what what is the way in which people understand, their lives or how their lives fit into the world around them. And I think ultimately, you know, for, for better or for worse in modern American, largely secular society, work is the way we do that. You Mm. know, that is, that is the standard Mm. question in in America. It's not the standard question everywhere It's like, well, what do you do, Andy? (laughs) And ultimately, I mean, that's a tell that work kind of is the central organizing principle about how we understand ourselves. And so helping uh, in a small way uh, through my work, through through my work uh, to help uh, people figure out their own work, to figure mm. out what that mm. looks like and how it can hopefully be a little bit more meaningful or a little bit more satisfying to them, I feel like actually is in some ways um, kind of a continuation of my work in Div School because it, it, really, it really is about, uh, helping people self actual self actualize around you know where they find their locus of meaning.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that from the vantage of this present moment you can see that connection and that really resonates with me. This this power, the, the importance of meaning making and and the structures we live in that help us do that. I want to and I just want to name like for folks who don't know your work and I suspect a lot will who are hearing this, but you know the the sort of way I experience you showing up now is really around this these themes of of reinvention and entrepreneurship and and sort of skillful communication and presence and like you're doing all this really cool work to help people show up inside of a, a conventional work you know system like work what do you do in a way that to me it sounds like is more authentic and aligned is that is that is that a fair is that true like that that you're helping people tap into something that's more true for them inside of their work
1: yeah I I, I definitely hope to do that I definitely aim to do that I mean ultimately it just it seems like such an incredibly depressing prospect for people to have to think about their work as something outside of themselves. I mean you know I understand obviously people are entitled to think the way they want to think and different cultures are entitled to think about things but you know I remember I remember dating someone when I was uh, in college, who is you know a, f- a few years older, and she already had a, a job like a real job, and it was she was like an administrative assistant at this nonprofit, and even though the nonprofit was something that she cared about and was very aligned about, the actual work was kind of boring and terrible. And I remember, you know, sh- I would ask her about her f- job, and she just she wouldn't want to talk about it. She was mm-hmm. like, oh. Mm. You know, like I'm. D- I'm d- don't even ask me. Like I'm done. It's the end of the day. I don't want to mm. go there. I don't want to think about it. And I just thought, you know, how horrible. Like that's that's not that's not how I want it to be for anybody. I mm. would like to help. You know, I mean, understanding, of course, that you know, this is not a perfect world. Not everybody can self actualize through their work, but I think a lot more of us can. Mm. And mm. Um, I would like people to be able to at least. You know, I mean, we all have sucky, boring things. I did my, you know, it was 4th of July weekend and I was like sending invoices to clients, you know? I mean, it's not (laughs) exciting, but, you know, I would like for all of us to be, for there to be at least some elements or some aspects of what we do that we actually really are excited to talk about, that we actually do find uh, pretty compelling.
0: That to me, for what it's worth, as one sort of data point comes through super clearly in, in your work. so So feeling that. I want to, I want to sort of come back to the present, but I'm feeling drawn back to the past. You talked about this moment where you got rejected from every doctoral program you applied to and, you know, you're smiling and laughing now, but I, I imagine that at the time that was a really confounding and challenging space to be in where the journey you thought you were on suddenly was saying, nope, not this way. Is that, what would, would you be willing to unpack that a little bit more for folks listening in?
1: Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, I applied to I, I think in retrospect I mean the the problem I guess you could say was I did not and this is this is often the problem for for people where things don't work out. Um you don't know what you don't know and mm. I did not properly understand that the process of getting accepted for for doctoral programs was fundamentally dissimilar than the the way that you got accepted for colleges or even for my master's degree mm. those i had aced it was fine i got into every college i applied to i got into yeah i mean i only applied to one graduate school you know for my master's degree i got in like it was it was fine you know and i knew how to do that but i didn't understand that doing doctoral work was fundamentally different like the things that i always kind of liked about myself and and which in college uh, they actually tell you like oh do this this is good you want to be well rounded you want to have a lot of interests you want to um you know be this renaissance person that's like great for college that is like literally the worst thing you can possibly be if you are applying to graduate programs and i just didn't know enough to know that <laughs> And I, yeah, I got my ass handed to me. I applied to three programs, which I guess was probably not enough. And I mean, I I had no illusions I would get into all of them, but mm-hmm. it had literally never occurred to me that I wouldn't get into any of them. And so I had zero plan B, literally it had wow. not even ever crossed my mind that I would need to do something radically different. So I was very alarmed. Uh, that summer that I was getting these notices and, um, I had to think fast. I really had to think fast. And so that was actually what got me into journalism as my kind of second choice was, you know, it was actually not a bad, uh, thought process, but I was like, okay, what else is out there that's also about reading and talking to people and writing. Ah, okay. And so I, I landed on journalism, which which I think was a good guess. But then uh within I and I managed to get an internship and I managed to get a job. Uh but then within a year I lost my job because the industry was <laughs> collapsing. So there were some tough breaks in my 20s.
0: Jeez. Yeah. You know, I I'm I'm projecting myself into that experience. So please like Please correct me if any of this doesn't ring true, but I I can, I can imagine that a part of me would have just said, it's kind of given up, but it kind of been like, God, like the odds are stacked against me What this, something's not working here. And at that point, just kind of take whatever, like, I'll just, just whatever, just do whatever. Um, because I need, I know I need to do something, but I, maybe I'll just get that administrative assistant job, or you know, like your that like that your your girlfriend had, went, had when she was out of college. Like, how did you how did you sit with that? Like, no doctoral, the industry's collapsing in journalism. WTF? <laughs> like, how did you hold steady with that? Or maybe maybe you didn't hold steady. Maybe that that knocked you off balance. But w- how did you navigate that?
1: Well. It, it was it was certainly demoralizing. That was for sure. But I think a fundamental advantage that I had, sort of instinctively, but I've now I've now codified it. So I recommend it to other people. Um, this is like sort of my anti my anti Zen philosophy. Is I like to encapsulate it, Andy, as blame out, not in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I just mm-hmm. I was just like those stupid fucking fucks. <laughs> like
0: I hate them
1: and they do not see my potential. They do not see, they do not properly appreciate what is inside me. And so I am just going to have to, it is annoying. I'm just going to have to move on uh, from it. And I'm going to be so successful that every day of the rest of their waking lives, they will regret having turned me down.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. That's potent. So there's this, like this real sense of like, I'm not going to let these idiots over here. Tell me that I don't have something off of the worlds.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know for a fact that they regret every day turning me down, but I hope they
0: do. <laughs> I still remember who they are. <laughs> But let me ask you an honest question: Like, um, if you could go back and get into any of those doctoral programs, would you?
1: I mean, it, I it is it is possible, it is conceivable to me that this is sort of a, a a retrospective reimagining to make myself feel better. But I actually do think that it was better that I did not um, for a couple of reasons. So, I mean, I, I, I'm glad I actually did not end up in that career. Number one, I think in some ways they, you know, even though I could have done a good job, I mean, you know, I was a good student. I was a good yeah. writer. I could have done a good job, but I think they probably did honestly pick up on, um, a fundamental misalignment, which is that, uh, you know, the level of hyper specificity that's necessary to be successful as a tenure track academic mm-hmm. really would have been stultifying to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, i I had a crush on someone once who h- had abandoned this doctoral program, and so uh, and anyway, I was I was asking her all these questions about it. You know, you know, I was like, captivated. I'm, tell me more. Tell me more. And she was telling me more, and I was like. I was super interested in this girl, and so I wanted to be like paying attention and like, oh, that's <laughs> fascinating. But as she's telling me, I'm like, oh Jesus, that's not fascinating at all. <laughs> like, she had spent like five years in this program studying. I kid you not, it was the shift from paper money to to like, or no, it was like for the shift from metals and gold to paper money <sighs> in 17th century England. And I was like, wow, that's just actually horrifying. I would really (laughs) never want to study that for five years. Um, So, yeah, I just the more I learned about what it was like to be a doctoral student, I was just like, no, no, God help me. I don't I don't want to do that at all. And then, of course, there's the practical considerations, which is that there is a you know, just structurally, it's kind of irresponsible how universities are doing this, but there is a a structural glut of humanities doctoral students, uh, and they keep producing them because they like to have low wage teaching assistants. (sighs) But then once they graduate, there are no actual jobs for them. So it further depresses wages. Um, So, I mean, it's just this really terrible cycle. And I probably would have had to do something else you know, otherwise, like it's just very, very hard, um, to actually land a tenure track position. Um, so, so in retrospect, I, could ima- I, I could imagine am- you
0: graduate with your PhD and be like, shit, I guess I'm going to go into journalism. Oh, wait, the industry. Is dead. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they, they did, they did me a favor really by, uh, kind of forcing, forcing all of that, uh, on the early side, rather than the later side.
0: Yeah. So you've got, you come out the other side of this kind of crucible with this sort of uh, bizarro Zen philosophy of like, you know, I am your, I'm not going to let your rejection define my worth. What's more, I'm going to show you that there's a path for me. There's a path for someone like me who has wide ranging interests, who, who is just like gobbles up information and can learn it and teach other people how to do it really skillfully. And, and here you are, I don't know, feel free to not date yourself if you don't want to, but like, you know, years later, you're, you're publishing books, you're teaching courses, you're writing regularly and, and uh, national, international media outlets, you're coaching, you're like, you have all this amazing stuff happening. I, I just, I mean, I'm curious, I'm curious what you're sitting with now as the next frontier when you've, uh, you've, you've done it. You've proven those motherfuckers that like, you can do it. <laughs> So what's the what's what's that like, and what what are you sitting with next? What's your sort of how are you continuing to grow on this journey? Well, uh, thank you, Andy. I
1: appreciate that. that's a kind uh, kind view, and I would say that the way that I think about future things, I mean, let's call it the next ten years or so, um, I would say. Uh-huh that I feel very fortunate that I've been successful in being able to do a lot. Um and you know, as you say, write books and teach and, you know, write for different publications and things like that. I would like to continue to take it up a notch so mm. that w- really one of my goals is to be uh widely acknowledged as one of the handful of top business thinkers in the world. That would mm. be that would mm. be my goal. Um I, I think um you know that that would require a sort of order of growth in terms of um you know i mean of course i will i will work on continuing to increase the quality of what i do and hopefully simultaneously um there will be increases in the number of people who are aware of what i do and hopefully that will be a virtuous circle so i think that's one piece and then the other piece is that in 2016, I set a challenge for myself and I decided that I wanted to write, uh, you know, to be the lyricist and librettist for a show that, uh, reached Broadway by 2026. So I created a 10 year plan, uh, to reach Broadway. So that's what I've been working on.
0: Oh my gosh. That's so cool. Um, gosh, I, I'm like, wow, I want to talk about both of those. There seems to me something in common about both of them, which is uh, a willingness to stake a claim on an ambition that some people might might, if they were to own try to own that ambition for themselves, just go like, "How in the hell could I ever do that?" So that seems to be one th- one thing that has in common, and another thing that has in common is that that both of them have an audience. That both of them have folks who are having an experience as a result of the, of what you're creating or producing. And I wonder, I wonder what's, what's important to you about, about that, about those themes of kind of like impact and uh, high ambition and reaching people and having, helping them have an experience that's different and unique what's important to you about that?
1: Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I guess ultimately I, I would it's probably a combination of two things. Um, one, <laughs> one of it, one of which society would laud, the other of which uh, it might scratch its head at. Uh, but you know, let's lay it all out there. I like so, that. I
0: like I like head scratchers. That's good. Yeah, I love to yeah. Hear that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of like the one-two punch of like you know, number one, I would really genuinely like to be helpful. I'd like I'd like to be helpful to to people, and um, I think you know certainly the goal of my business work is um, very cl- clearly in that area of mm. like, you know, how do you improve your career or how do you improve your business or things like that? To a certain extent for uh, for my musicals, I mean, the goal is to entertain, but um, you would like to make people think, you'd like to make people feel you want them to have a good time so that there would be some form of of being helpful or or something like that. I think the the other piece of it, is, um, perhaps just, uh, (laughs) for good or ill, uh, the conviction that I know how to do things Mm -hmm. and the -hmm. world would be better if more people did them this way. (laughs) 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 That doesn't always work out, of course, but uh, you know, often it
0: does. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I love that. Again, there's this, like, what I'm tuning into is the way that you just really stand in your inherent worth and value to other people. Like- I just think there's something in society, a thing that scratches my head or makes me sad. And I lived with this for a long time was this kind of idea that it was more important to fit in than to stand out. And, and that, like, if you were too, too open in your ambition or too if you thought too big that, that people would kind of cut you down and say like, Hey, rather than, rather than rise up to meet that challenge, I want to bring you back down here. Cause that, that ambition or that kind of boldness is intimidating. But uh, I, it's so funny. I don't, at least I'll speak for myself. I've never once encountered that your approach is like, wow. Yeah. Dory's crushing it. And you still seem really genuinely open and committed to people wherever they are on their journey. So I just like, I wonder if you've had any experience of that, of like, Hey, this is my ambition. And, uh, and you have people being like, yeah, right. And how do you, how do you hold steady with that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing that I've really become very convinced of over the years is that people treat you the way that you signal to them that you need to be treated. Mm. Mm. And I think we have a lot more power over the response we receive than we might imagine. Mm. So, I mean, you know, there are obviously a couple of, a couple of important pieces. I mean, you have, so you have to be rational and know what you're talking about, right? Like a couple of years ago, I remember I, you know, met up with some contact, and you know, a friend was like, Oh, you should meet this woman. Oh, she she's really interested in theater too, and blah, 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 blah. And so anyway, she's telling me all about her plans and she's like, and my plan, she was like, I don't know, sort of this like, you know, the secret kind of person. She's like, my intention to the universe is that this fall, I'll have a show on Broadway. And like, listen, I mean, this is not like she had a show off Broadway and it was going to go to Broadway. She was like, she had nothing. She had like nothing. And listening to her just... You know, the very first thing that I did when I wanted to learn about theater was like, okay, how does it work? Like, what's the structure? How does a show get to Broadway? Mm, mm. And literally, that's why I created a 10 year plan because on average, it takes seven years for a show to go from development to Broadway if it in fact makes it to Broadway. Like, you know, I've now invested in Broadway shows specifically for the purpose of understanding the arc. So I know that she's literally smoking crack. There's, (laughs) There's 41 theaters. I mean, now everything's wacky with COVID, but like pre-COVID, there's 41 theaters. They are all, you know, queued up the wazoo unless you, you know, have production financing in place already. There there's literally no way you're going to get a show on Broadway coming out of nowhere in the fall. Like she was, it was just kind of weird, wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I heard that I'm like, okay, you are like extremely not credible because (laughs) you have to do your homework. You have to know Mm -hmm. the basics, Mm -hmm. but assuming that you have, assuming that you've taken the time to research the landscape, to understand like how things work or whatever, when it comes to what your ambitions are, um, I think that there's a lot of people out there that kind of telegraph to a greater or lesser extent that they're looking for other people's, uh, if not approval, at, at least they're you know they're kind of checking over their shoulder, like well, what do they think? What do mm-hmm. they think? Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, this is one of <laughs> this is one of the lessons, I guess you could say, one of the one of the useful lessons that I learned uh, in terms of being gay and coming out as a teenager which is that, you know, if you, if you act like you're looking for somebody's permission to to be gay, like you ain't going to get it, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) it's you Mm. know, like you don't, Mm. you don't ask for permission, you, you, you tell people and then that's Mm. it. And you brook no dissent. And if you do that, then almost always people are going to be like, oh, okay, cool. And then that's the end of it.
0: Yeah. I'm really impacted by that. I'm sensing this is another aspect of your like anti Zen philosophy. This is like the Dory Clark Zen. Um, I was just, I had another guest on the show who shared with me, and this really resonated uh, that that in contexts that are not welcome to to people who are gay, uh, people who are out actually thrive and like in organizational contexts that culturally are not welcome. People are gay people who are out thrive more than people who are trying to keep it a secret yes. or who are trying to repress it. And that all, and what I'm hearing, what you describe, is a version of that, like all the energy we're using to try and not upset anyone or try and get people to love us or try and get people to like approve us or give us permission is actually energy that could just go into being who you are. And then as a result, like, you suddenly have a much bigger landscape uh, of possibility to play with. Cause you're kind of like, look, you know, as long as you're not literally attacking me, like I don't really care what you have to say or think, because I've, I've got, I, this is who I am and what I believe. So really, I'm really touched by you sharing that story. And I think it's really exciting to realize that a lot of energy gets wasted on stuff that frankly doesn't really make a huge difference. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm, I, I love what you said, Andy, and I'm even going to see you and raise you, which is that, you know, while it's true that if someone is like crazy homophobic or something like that, I mean, yeah, you're not going to necessarily change their mind, but for the vast, vast majority of people, it's not even just like a question of like, you think what you want, I'm not going to pay attention. It actually, I would argue is something even stronger than that. I'd make a stronger case, which is that you're treating sexuality or, you know, whatever the use case is as a given fact that it's, it's not, it's just like, this is, this is a thing. Of course, you're not going to make a big deal out of it because it's just a thing. And, you know, we're sort of, we're sort of moving forward. Like, okay, this is like, it's, it's, it's not a thing that's up for debate, you know, in the same way that like you know, whatever, I'm not going to have you vote on whether I should be right or left-handed. Like, okay, we're just moving on. Like, that's what it is. Um, that I think that actually changes things. That actually mm-hmm.
0: proactively
1: mm-hmm. changes things because people look to us in terms of mm-hmm. like how, how they should be reacting to us. So it's creating a cascade and a positive chain of events because we are teaching them through how we act, how they should then react.
0: Wow. Love that. Thank you. Thank you for upping the case. That feels really resonant with me. And I'm curious, I know you have, you know, a series of books that I think, as I hear you describe it in that way, play with that theme. For instance, in entrepreneurial U, you, you sort of put up menu, like here are possible pathways to take something that you are good at or that's unique to you or that you love and to build a, a living around that. Uh, and you're not necessarily saying do all 10 of these, but you're saying like, if this one is right for you, here's a path forward. Right. And in that way, you then like from where you sit, I'm a podcast host, right? Like, you know, yeah, sure. I'll come on your podcast, Andy. But you know, a year ago, if I was just like, Hey, Dory, can we have coffee? You know, you might not have said Yes to that, because I would have just been a guy asking you for coffee. So, so I'm just like tuning into the way in which your work kind of invites people in a really practical, pragmatic, do your homework kind of way. That if you want to stand, you know, if you want to stand on this stage, whether it's Broadway or something else, make a path for yourself and teach people to see you on that path, which is really cool. And I wonder, like, I know you're working on a new book, and so I'm wondering, like how are you evolving that? What's, what's fresh or alive for you as you see the next frontier for people who are open to reimagining how they show up and work and how they, how they get maybe a bit more ambitious and bold with what they can do in the world.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate that. And yeah, I'm very excited about the the new book. It's called the long game, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. Mm, And thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I, th- I think all of us can probably agree that the way that the deck is stacked in society these days, the the pressure, the emphasis is on the short term. Whether that is corporations being so focused on quarterly earnings reports for Wall Street, or you know, for for individuals, there's there's a lot of pressure, whether it's like things that we have to tell our parents and colleagues or like, you know, looking around on social media and seeing that everybody else seems to have it figured out. Mm. There Mm. is a lot of concern. Um, I think internally for a lot of us that like, oh my God, you know, I, uh, it seems like everybody else has got it figured out. Why don't I have it figured out? Mm. Or, you know, if, Mm. if you're pursuing something so often there's, just real panic and frustration because it's just, it's not working out. It's not working out. Oh my God, does this mean I can't do it? Does this mean I'm not good at it? Does this mean I should quit or like, should I keep going? I don't know. And there's a lot of, of that struggle. And I see it in members of my recognized expert community sometimes. I have this this online course and community that I run for people who are smart professionals looking to kind of grow their their platform and get their ideas better known. And I certainly went through a period of experiencing it myself, where you know, you feel like you're kind of operating in the dark sometimes about um, whether you're doing the right thing. And I really wanted to write a book to help people think through that process because I am a firm believer, uh, you know, as much as I like hate patience. I fucking hate patience. Uh, <laughs> it's very annoying. Um, but what I, what I do believe in, and I sort of make a case for is what I call strategic patience, mm. because, you know, the kind of passive patience is sort of like, you know, what your mom might tell you like, Oh, well, you know, give it enough time and maybe something will work out. You know, it's like, that's what my mom says. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's so getting passive. a verbatim
0: <laughs> quote from Dory's mom here. Yeah.
1: That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't mean to throw your mom under the bus. Maybe she doesn't <laughs> do that, but my mom,
0: my mom is more a- like, "When are you going to get your shit together? Andy? Come on!" <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and I'm like, "Hey, I'm being strategically patient." Mom.
1: That's right. That's right. But I think it is an important question. Like, how, how do you how do you thread that needle? You know, what's yeah. how do you tell the difference between um, being patient enough so that the right things, the slow but important things, work mm. out versus uh, abandoning them too quickly or you know, staying too long in something that actually isn't right. And mm. so I created this book as hopefully a way for people to be able to apply that lens of strategic thinking to their own lives and their own careers.
0: Mm. Love that. Where or how are you applying it uh, or helping, like, helping others apply that? That's distinction of when should I step back? When should I lean in more? When is too much? how is that how is that actually showing up for you in practice
1: yeah well i mean you know one one area for sure is uh which i actually have a whole a whole section in the book talking about is the the whole broadway thing because mm-hmm. it is actually very rare very surprisingly rare once we reach adulthood for us to literally start something completely new that we're terrible at. (laughs) like, that's very rare. I mean, you know, like a lot of us like, okay, I mean, maybe the the nearest example is like, oh, I wanted to pick up Spanish and I tried some Duolingo or whatever. (laughs) But I mean, it's relatively low stakes, right? It's like, okay, if the machine beeps at you, it's like kind of who cares? Nobody knows. Um, And when I think about my early days writing musical theater, I mean, it was just it was really like having to lean into abject humiliation. Mm. Like I just, I did not know how to do it. And, you know, Mm. I mean, it's not, it's not like it was my fault, you know, like I grew up in this little town and we didn't have a theater program. We certainly didn't have a musical theater program. Like I had never done it. Like when I was a kid, uh, you know, I mean, my parents tried to "quote unquote" expose me to culture uh, as much as as one could in that capacity, but that meant seeing cats in Raleigh, like that was it. You know, <laughs> so I just, um, yeah, I I really had no idea. It's like a lot of things. It's a very particular art form, and you know, I see in my students that I work with, like in my recognized expert community, literally this morning, I got an email from somebody who was so discouraged because she had this piece she had submitted at the Harvard business review. She'd had some back and forth with them even. So she got some encouragement. And then in the end, they turned it down. Mm. And I Mm. happen to know that, you know, because I have spent like a decade studying this, you know, I've done courses about it, all these things. Like, I, I think I understand what happened and, you know, there's there's just very particular nuances that HBR is looking for and this is true for any publication but you know they're looking for very very particular elements that are not intuitive this is not a question of like are you a good writer oh mm-hmm. therefore you can mm-hmm. write for HBR mm-hmm. Untrue. You can be a great writer. You can, you know, you can be whatever, you know, like Maya Angelou or something. She's not going to get in HBR. I mean, also, I think she's not alive. But if, you know, if she were, she would not get in HBR just because she's a good writer. You have to know the house style and similar and study it be- you know, because it's a very particular thing. And similarly for musical theater. I mean, for instance, who knew apparently in classical music, you know, and this is not true. Like people break the rules all the time. Hamilton breaks it, but in classical musical theater, um, you have to have, uh, a true rhyme. Like if, if I was mm. going to rhyme like home with alone, that would be like, Terrible. Like you would be shamed for doing that. I'm like, fuck, I didn't know. Like, like in pop songs, they do it, but this is not a pop song. Mm, and so you just mm. have to make every humiliating mistake and be just like, okay, and you know, get your self-worth in other ways. And you do that for a while until you learn and until you get good. And it it is not easy. It is not easy this process of mm. eating crow. But um, anyway, all that is to say, uh, I think that. You have to, one of the most important things that I'll say, Andy, is uh, we kind of started the conversation in in this way, uh, in many ways, about me not understanding what it took to get into a doctoral program. Mm. There is a story that I tell in the long game, which is in many ways one of my favorite anecdotes. It comes from Jeff Bezos's 2018 shareholder letter for Mm. Amazon, and he tells a story. He says he has this friend, uh, unnamed friend, it was probably Lauren Sanchez. And there's <laughs> this friend who decided to hire a handstand coach. And so she wanted handstand, to
0: be-like, oh, to be able to stand on your like, hands. Yeah. yeah, like in yeah. yoga. And it, so she wanted
1: it. to she wanted to be this like great yog- yogini. And so she hires the handstand coach. And what the handstand coach tells her, and she then repeats to Jeff Bezos, is that the average person thinks typically, you know, prior to becoming educated about this, that if you spend about two weeks practicing reasonably assiduously, that within two weeks, you should be able to do a yoga handstand. It turns out that is not true. It turns out that if you practice every day, it takes about six months of practice to be able to do a yoga handstand. And I I saw that. I'm like, my God, you know, that is sort of the perfect example because the truth is you know if if you think oh it should be a couple of weeks like you never interrogate that you never investigate that but then you do it for a month you do it for 6 weeks and you're like this isn't working no mm-hmm. this i guess i'm not mm-hmm. meant for handstands and mm-hmm. it's like okay guess what you you underestimated by a factor of 12 mm. what was necessary to mm. succeed at this. Like you can succeed just as well as anyone else. You know, I mean, barring some terrible physical, you know, ailment, you should be able to do this. But the problem is that you need, you just need to put in the work that's necessary. And for so many of us, we don't take the time to do the research up front to really understand what's necessary. We therefore have unrealistic expectations. And it causes a cascade of problems that leads that leads in the end to us not really fulfilling the dreams we want. And I want to overturn that. And with a long game, I want to help correct that. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Amen. Love it. That's awesome. I'm really struck with, uh, I don't know, have you heard of, I'm sure you've heard of Ira Glass's sort of famous quote about like our tastes outpacing our ability.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And I hear you speaking in a really strategic and deep way to, to people who, give up on themselves too soon. So thank you for doing that.
1: Yeah, Mm. absolutely. Thank you.
0: Mm. I'm conscious of time. I know you have to jump to your next thing in just a minute. I wonder, uh, that feels like a really strong place to land. Uh, I wonder if there's any other parting words you want to share with my audience and then also want to invite you to share where folks can learn more about the book, uh, the long game in particular and your other work and all the cool stuff that you're doing in the world.
1: I appreciate it, Andy. Thank you so much. I will also just mention for folks that are interested in these questions and and thinking more about strategic thinking and how to apply it to our lives and our careers, uh, that I do have a free resource, um, which is the Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment. And anyone who's interested can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game.
0: Nice. That's awesome. Well, here's to more of us playing the long game. I sense that the world would benefit if we had more people who believed at age, whatever, that 10 years from now, they could perhaps make one of their wildest dreams come true. And I sense that whether or not, I don't know how far you are, maybe, how far are you into your 10-year plan for Broadway? I'm, fi- I'm five years You're in. Halfway, so amazing.
1: Halfway there. I have I have completed a musical. I've written a complete musical. I have completed a, uh, a three years of a musical theater fellowship training program. And now I'm just networking to hopefully get this uh, sucker developed by a lead producer and, or a, uh, a nonprofit theater partner. So I'm, I'm working
0: on it. And just, I don't know, like, I don't want to, uh, for you, I know you're like getting it on Broadway, so I don't want to undercut this, but I also want to celebrate that. Like you have written musical theater right like five years later you actually have a completed piece of theater that in theory could be staged on on a stage in the world in the real world how fucking cool is that so like here's to the long game thank you for modeling it in your life's journey in this work and this book i'm really psyched to share it with people and i'm really appreciative of you coming into the wonder dome with me
1: thank you andy so good to spend time with you
0: yeah this is beautiful thanks for tuning into the wonder dome this podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Surqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world's while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.